Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. Today, I'm talking to the economist and author Narina Hertz about loneliness. Why are we all so lonely, and what does it mean for our politics? Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, Europe's leading magazine of books and ideas, where you can read elegant and expansive essays on every subject imaginable. From Amir Srinivasan on pronouns to James Meek on the WHO, from Pankaj Mishra on Anglo-America to Catherine Rundell on the Greenland Shark. Get 12 issues in print and online, that's half a year of the LRB, for just £12, with the URL lrb.me slash talk. That's lrb.me slash talk. Marina Hertz's new book is called The Lonely Century. It is about the many different kinds of loneliness that people experience. She's talked to a lot of people, including a lot of lonely people. What's so interesting about this book is how it goes from personal experience to some of the very biggest themes, including the themes we talk about on Talking Politics. Narina, one of the really striking things about your book is it describes so many different kinds of loneliness and so many different kinds of lives that are affected by loneliness. And to say up front, one of the things that really interests me about this is that it cuts across what we tend to think of now as the big political divides. So young people are really lonely, on your account, and older people are really lonely, or people in isolated rural communities are lonely, but also people in what before COVID were the teeming cities are lonely. So to start with, I'd just like to discuss these different kinds of loneliness. Maybe we could start with young and old. In your research, you've talked to lots of people, you've looked into this really in depth. What is the experience of loneliness for the young, do you think, now in the 21st century? Well, empirically, we know that loneliness has really been rising in recent years. And the numbers are very striking. Three in five 18 to 34-year-olds in the United Kingdom, for example, feel lonely often or sometimes nearly a half of 10 to 15-year-olds. And these numbers are, of course, likely to have been exacerbated by weeks and months now of lockdown and social distancing. Behind the numbers are, of course, the stories. And and in my interviews with young people across the globe, you know, what came up time and time again? And in fact, it was the whole reason I started thinking about loneliness was these experiences of loneliness people were sharing with me. First, my students initially. So, Back in 2013, I started really noticing that students were coming to my office hours and saying, we're feeling really lonely, we're finding it really hard to connect with each other. I was seeing it in the way that students interacted in group discussions and group activities, that they were finding face-to-face interaction more challenging. And then in my research, specifically for this book, I came across people like Peter, the four foot something bespectacled year nine student who told me about how desperately lonely he felt using social media, how he would post things and then wait there desperately hoping that somebody would like his posts or share them or retweet them or follow him and nobody doing that. And then him asking himself again and again, why am I so alone? Or Claudia, the American high school student who told me about after 
her school's homecoming event. Her friends told her that they weren't going to do anything. And then she saw them on her social media feeds, hanging out together, having fun. And she had been excluded and she was so depressed that she stayed in her room for a week and refused to go to school. And one of the head teachers I spoke to in my research told me about, and I thought this was a really interesting insight, whereas in the past, teachers or parents would be able to see that a child was excluded. So you'd be able to see as a teacher that nobody was asking a child to sit next to them at lunch or play with them in the playground today because so much interaction between young people has migrated online and on social media and through apps like WhatsApp, you can't see it as a parent or a teacher. You can't see the exclusion. So the child can be being excluded and no adult can even see this is going on. And does that chime with, because you've written in the past about this, and actually I'd wanted to talk to you about this previously on our podcast, this category that you, I think, came up with, Generation K, it's what, 15 to 24? 15 to 25-year-olds. Yeah. And K is for Katniss. It's the Hunger Games generation, right? Exactly. So whereas the older millennials were really the yes, we can, world is your oyster generation, this generation, like for Katniss Everdeen, experienced the world as dystopic, unequal, harsh, kind of Hobbesian, really, in quite a profound sense. And of course, again, this is going to have been amplified by recent events, because for this generation already, the world was feeling frightening. They were worried about their futures. They were worried about their economic prospects. They were worried about getting a job. They were worried about getting into debt. And they were feeling profoundly alienated and disconnected from each other as a generation. And do they tend then to characterise it as loneliness? Because there are words there like it's a frightening world, it's an alienating world, they're very worried about the climate. It's quite hard if you're now 15 to think about the world in 10 years' time, never mind in 30 years' time. But is loneliness, do you think, an absolutely core part of this? Do they use the word? So they may not use the word, but in fact, one of the things that I argue throughout this book is that we would be well served defining loneliness broader because loneliness is a bit like pain in that people have different experiences of it and there are different drivers. But loneliness is not just about feeling bereft of friends and company and kind of craving love. I mean, that is, of course, part of it. And it's not just about feeling invisible and ignored, although, of course, that's part of it, too. What I argue is that loneliness is also about feeling ignored or unsupported or uncared for also by our fellow citizens, by our governments, by our communities, by ourselves. So I see loneliness as something political as well as personal, social as well as economic, technologically driven, but also driven by the choices that we make. And so young people may not use the term lonely, but if you ask them, are you feeling excluded? Do you feel the government cares for you? Do you feel the things that you care about are being acknowledged by those in power? Do you feel marginalised? These are all in some way, I would argue, shorthand, proxy for loneliness as well as the more conventional, just feeling isolated and alone. In a way, that then gets to the question that I hinted at at the beginning, which is, so if you were a younger person, you might think of the experience of a much older person, isolated, maybe in a care home, cut off from family, particularly under current conditions, as a quintessential form of loneliness. 
I mean, I think it's a real question whether, as a younger person, you can see there is something profoundly in common going on here, because politically, at least, I think we are now used to the idea that Generation K or millennials are experiencing the world and then reacting to it and indeed voting in very different ways from people over the age of 50, 60, 70. But loneliness, I thought this all the time I was reading your book, loneliness could be one of the few things that bridges this divide. But I'm not sure if you are 15 and you look at the experience of a person in a care home that you make that connection. Maybe you should. I mean, do you think people could or should make that connection? Yes, definitely could. And we would be well served if they did. It's about articulating what loneliness really means and what the drivers are and highlighting the shared experience to the extent that the experience is shared and actively seeking to bring young and older people together so that they can feel and experience what they have in common. Because one of the reasons people feel so siloed and atomized and disconnected is because they identify so strongly along age lines or political lines or identity that they forget to see what they have in common. And loneliness is something that people do very much have in common. There have been really inspiring schemes which have brought young and old people together to dance together, to do activities together, to go on walks together, to cook together, to share skills together. And through doing things with people different to ourselves, we're more likely to understand what we have in common, including shared negative experiences. And this theme, you know, which comes up again and again in my book of bringing different people together as a way of enabling us to reconnect with other people, but also understand what we have in common is really important and something to highlight. It is, I think, still the great unresolved question of the pandemic. I mean, that phrase, shared negative experiences. So we are all sharing a negative experience and we have been for months, and we don't yet know whether that could conceivably further down the line create forms of political connection or solidarity, or whether what will really come through is the negativity of it. I mean, if you look at the United States now, there's not a huge amount of evidence that the shared negative experience is producing solidarity, but we don't know. It's at least possible. I mean, that's what your book really brings out. It is at least possible that there is a deep connection there. Yes, and loneliness can be a way to bring people together. It can be the rallying force if it's used in that way. The danger, of course, is, as we've seen, is that it can also be weaponized. It can be used by politicians, and we've seen right-wing populists in particular use it in this way as a way of making people feel more suspicious, more angry with people not like them. So how are we going to use and deploy today's loneliness crisis as a way of bringing people together or as a way of making people feel that the reason they feel lonely, excluded, marginalised is because other people are being treated better than them? And you're right, we don't know how this will necessarily play out. But what's clear is that we do have an opportunity here to reframe the way we're thinking about loneliness so that it actually becomes something we can use to mobilize 
people and bring different people together. I mentioned at the beginning the other big divide, and it certainly plays out in how people vote, is cities and people who don't live in cities. So not just rural, but also smaller towns. And again, you describe different kinds of loneliness. So there is a very clear, the sort of heightened urban version of it, being in what were a few months ago, these teeming cities. And it's a bit like what you described just now in schools, very closely connected with people in some physical space and feeling very alone. And then the other version, which could be actual physical isolation, or at least feeling cut off from certain kinds of life or certain kinds of political support or that feeling, you know, that all the action is somewhere else. And that does seem to produce very different political outlooks. The divides in contemporary democracy, not all of them, but a lot of them do seem to go along those lines. I mean, cities, big cities, the voting patterns are broadly progressive. You know, the the cities voted for Clinton, the cities voted for Romain. The non-city areas voted for Leave. The non-city areas voted for Trump. So for me, the biggest stretch is that we can bridge that divide through loneliness or alienation, because it politically, at least, it feels like a very different kind of experience. But persuade me I'm wrong. It's a big ask. Yeah, I mean, firstly, I think it's important to acknowledge that, yes, whereas some voters for right-wing populists are not the majority in cities, there is a sizable constituency of right-wing populist voters who are urban dwellers. And in my interviews with especially actually young right-wing populist voters, I did come across a number of these people like Eric, who is very passionate about Le Pen's Rassemblement National, somebody who is a baker in Paris in his early 20s, talked to me very movingly about how he feels that he doesn't know anyone around him anymore, how his neighbours are constantly changing, how he doesn't know his neighbour's name, how he feels abandoned by a state that won't be there for him when he's old or sick and ill, and how he has found community and solidarity in his membership and activism of Rassemblement National, in his going out for drinks after meetings with his fellow Rassemblement National members leafleting with them. Or people like Giorgio, a small businessman in Milan, in his 30s, he tells me about how he, again, was feeling very lonely and isolated in the city and through his league gatherings has found community as they sit at dinner and sing traditional songs together. So I think, firstly, it's important to acknowledge that there is a noticeable sizable and significant constituency within cities who have been voting for right-wing populists. And I think loneliness is a shared experience for them, for sure. And then I think, again, it's a question of framing. Can politicians emerge who are able to articulate the experience of the rural dweller who is feeling lonely because Government spending tends to favour urban centres and so their areas have been underfunded, who feels lonely because of the relative lack of public transport, who feels lonely because of the relative lack of employment opportunities in their area, actually has things in common with the urban dweller who also is feeling lonely, also perhaps partly because of their economic opportunities. And I think as unemployment rises further over the next year or so, 
I would have thought that these shared experiences of loneliness, which economics and economic insecurity will undoubtedly feed and exacerbate, will in some ways make it easier to articulate that this is a more shared experience with more shared drivers. I don't have the data to back up what I'm about to say, so this is just anecdotal, but I have a sense that seen from the other side, from the side of the people who live outside of cities who will vote often differently, obviously not everyone is the same and there are big divisions within rural as well as urban communities, but will in the round vote differently. One of the things that they feel is that they have real community outside of cities and that's one of the things that's under threat. Some people... And this is a big driver of right-wing populism, as you call it, feel that what they're defending is their community against this sort of alienation that's coming from the cities. I think that's a huge challenge for politics. I mean, for sure. And that's something that right-wing populists play to so brilliantly with their bifurcating of the world as them and us, you and they, we the people, they the outsiders immigrants and natives. I mean, they're brilliant at playing to that sense of people are going to come and destroy your community, your identity. And, you know, I think what the left has done so badly in recent times is provide an alternative notion of solidarity. And I think the diminishment of trade unions, the diminishment of workplaces where people feel that they have jobs with history which provide a sense of solidarity and brotherhood play a part here as well. And one of the things that actually came out in my interviews with people who voted in rural communities for Trump in 2016, and I was interviewing railroaders across the US, one of the things they really missed was the solidarity that had come from working on the railroad. And so time and time again in my research, what I realized was that this fundamental, hardwired human need we have to feel connected to others is something in the 21st century for a whole variety of reasons people do not have. And there's a real opportunity now for a centrist politician or a centre-left or a centre-right politician to emerge and say, look, let's acknowledge that in the 21st century, people feel across the board, young and old, rich and poor, rural and from cities, alienated, disconnected, excluded, marginalised, lonely. Let's acknowledge that. Let's look at the root causes, which are societal, but also economic, political. And let's use this recognition that we're all feeling so isolated and disconnected as a way to actively do things to bring us back together and reconnect us to each other. And that this doesn't have to be at the exclusion of certain groups, that this isn't a zero-sum game, that you will only be able to feel connected and part of a community if we trash others and people not like you. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? 
helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I found myself thinking when thinking about this theme about who would be the politician who would speak for the lonely. And it would be a brave politician even to use that word. I can't remember, maybe you know of politicians who've admitted that they're lonely. I mean, politicians occasionally admit they're suffering from real mental health challenges, that they experience the challenges of the 21st century the way the rest of us do. But I can't think of one who said that he or she is lonely, though they must be, right? I mean, we all are. They must be lonely. And it's it's a word that would be really brave for a politician to embrace, I think. It would be wonderful, but it would be unusual. There is a lot of stigma still associated with the word. People often don't like admitting that they feel lonely. But if we widen the definition of loneliness, if we use the word lonely to mean not only feeling isolated, without friends, without the care and support of our family or loved ones, but if we use lonely to also symbolise and mean feeling excluded politically, economically, socially, more generally too, then I think that word becomes less personal less loaded and something that that politicians can use to both explain our shared feelings about today but also develop policies around we need a comprehensive agenda for change we need politicians committing to not only helping people come together and that is of course essential we need to desperately refund the infrastructure of community, which has been ravaged since 2008, since the financial crisis. In the United Kingdom, we've seen 800 libraries shut down over the past decade. We've seen a third of youth centres closed down. We've seen community centres closed down. We've seen adult day centres closed down. So there is a real infrastructure of community that desperately needs funding. We need our local neighbourhoods our local communities to be nurtured and governments can, politicians can play a real role there in revitalising the high street, in imposing empty shop taxes on shops that are left unused, like is being done in Belgium, in Rosselaire, in creating a whole category of new businesses pro-community, which are given preferential tax treatment because they're fostering communities like bookshops and neighbourhood cafes. But it's also about governments addressing and acknowledging the real feelings of marginalisation that people have, so many people have economically and politically now, which is only going to get worse over the coming two years, two or three years, as we have to deal with the fallout from the pandemic. So I think, yes, it's good if a politician will acknowledge that they are feeling lonely in the traditional sense or have felt lonely in the traditional sense, but it's also about a politician saying, look, people feel lonely because people legitimately feel excluded and marginalised, and we're going to do something about this. As you say, physical space really matters when we talk about public space. 
there's a huge difference between the kind of public space where people feel comfortable, feel that they can spend time and the sorts of public spaces that we often experience that seem to be designed to make people move on. I often find myself thinking, just walking around, we all get such a warped view of what other people are because we only see the people who are out. You know, if you think of how many people, for whatever reason, either can't or don't want to leave their own homes, if they are even in their own homes, there's a sort of selection bias here. We only ever see the people who have made it out. And the same is true, and you hint at this, with the architecture of democracy. I mean, democracy is structured in a way, it produces certain kinds of visibility, the kinds of politicians we get. I mean, the kinds of people who are going to stand for public office, the way elections work, the way that we're encouraged to interact politically favours certain kinds of interaction. And it does exclude others. And you talk quite passionately about the need to redesign democracy too. So give us a sense of what it would look like to be more open to the lonely. Well, when we think of democracy, I think we can think of it, and I'm sure you'll agree, in so many different ways. And I think there's a case to be made at the most micro level first for practicing what I think of as inclusive democracy more in our day-to-day lives, because there is a skill set that is associated with inclusive democracy, being kind to others, being tolerant, being empathetic, that in our busy, busy, go, 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 24-7, perhaps especially urban lives, we're in danger of losing and not practicing. And as more and more people live alone and as cities become more lonely, I think there is a real danger that people have less opportunity to practice democracy in their day-to-day lives. So I think one thing we can do is ourselves consciously think about how we can better practice democracy. And that can be through joining a local community group. It can be through taking a leadership role in a community group. It can be through consciously thinking about being more reciprocal in the way that we interact with those around us. So these are things we can do at a very micro-personal level to reinvigorate democracy. And then there are things governments and local governments can definitely do to enable people to participate more in democracy. And participatory democracy is something I've looked at intellectually and in my research for almost 20 years now. And I want to be clear, I'm not calling for more referenda here, because I think that's a very blunt form of participation. But I think there are inspiring examples of participation in democracy at local levels where people do feel more included in the political process. Camden Council ran a um, scheme where they brought together a group of people from the constituency representative along age and socioeconomic background and gender and ethnicity to discuss climate change and what the council should do, what policies they should implement around climate change. And they ran a series of meetings with this group where they actively debated and discussed what could be done and charged the street with coming up with a list of policies. And at first, understandably, people looked at each other suspiciously, people had different points of view. But because consensus was the goal, ultimately, the group did come up with a whole host of recommendations, which the council are going to implement. So there are examples across the globe, and this is just one of at a local level, people participating more in politics and this making a difference. And I think another thing governments really could do, and it's something that I increasingly think is necessary in a world as 
fractured and divided as ours is actively seek ways to bring different people together because I think that this speaks to your point David about you know we often only come into contact with people like us and that really needs to change urgently and it was a, an incredible initiative that ran in Germany it was actually initiated by the private sector by a newspaper deed site where the newspaper which had got so kind of tired of the growing political polarization in Germany and people stuck in their own echo chambers initiated a scheme Deutschland spricht where they encouraged people from opposite sides of the political divide to come together and meet up face to face in person and just talk about things and thousands of people across the country did it and you had anti asylum seeker people meeting up with asylum seekers you had people who cherished the Deutschmark meeting up with pro-EU campaigners, you had machinists meeting up with university professors, you know, having a beer together, having a coffee together. And what was fascinating was that even just after two hours, so a really short encounter, what they found was that the people who participated had significantly different beliefs about people not like them. They could see the points of commonality, their shared interests, their shared concerns. Often it was around family. They felt more generally trusting of other Germans. When they were asked the question, do you think Germans care about other Germans before and after this gathering, their answer dramatically changed. So I think there's a really compelling case for governments to play a role in actively encouraging and facilitating and perhaps even mandating people to spend time with people different to them. You could have different schools of different ethnic makeups and socioeconomic makeups having to do shared activities together, shared sports classes, shared drama classes. President Macron did trial a scheme recently around civic participation where he put 16 and 17 year olds from very different backgrounds together for a period where they actually did things with people different to them in order to span these divides. So I think there's actually lots governments can do to speak to exclusion, to speak to loneliness and to help people come together again. The question is, are there politicians who are brave and bold enough to do this? We're used to the idea that our politicians aren't particularly representative of the societies that they speak for. They're too old, they're too white, they're too male. It's not as bad as it used to be, but it's still pretty bad. But the other thing that they are, and representative democracy is designed to encourage certain kinds of people into politics, they're too extrovert. I mean, they're too, in a way, they're not typical. I've met a lot of politicians, I'm sure you have too, and when you meet them face to face, they are like us, and they have the same vulnerabilities. But they obviously inevitably project differently. And it is one of the challenges of democracy in a lonely century, in a lonely world, that representative democracy filters out the lonely. And it's one of the reasons why I genuinely do think that we need a much, much broader understanding of what democracy is. We're much too fixated on who wins elections, because elections were designed to be won by people who aren't typical of a lonely world. Yes, rather than instilling the values of democracy into our day-to-day interactions and lives, which is, I think, absolutely essential and fundamental. I also think to your point about politics not representing 
people, that's also a problem potentially when local governments are designing participatory forums, because the danger, of course, is that you could even get very different people together with different backgrounds and different educations and different socioeconomic groupings. But there is always the danger that the extrovert will be the one who's most heard and the most articulate one will be the one who's most listened to. And one of the other things about the Camden initiative that I thought was inspiring and that we can learn from is how well facilitated it was, with facilitators really consciously seeking to draw out the quiet person in the room, seek the wisdom and counsel of those who often are excluded, because otherwise we're in danger there too of these forums ultimately excluding. I want to ask you about another big theme of your book, which we haven't touched on yet, which is robots, because that's another way in which this could go down two different paths. We're not just entering the century where there's going to be increasing automation, people are going to be losing jobs, people are increasingly working from home, they're having to work and communicate through platforms that alienate them from each other. I think we probably all increasingly feel that Zoom isn't an absolutely kind of loving way of being with other human beings. But there are forms of, increasingly forms of interaction with technology, which promise to alleviate loneliness. So you write a lot about, and Japan is usually the sort of case study for this, but it's going to spread much more widely. Older people, isolated older people, forming a connection with AIs. And it does actually help. Machines can make you feel less lonely. So I recently watched the film Her, with my 17-year-old daughter. I hadn't seen it since it came out in 2013. She'd never seen it. And we were both really, so watching it in 2020 during a pandemic, we were really affected by it, both of us, I think in different ways. If people haven't seen it, it's the film about a man who falls in love with, she's called Samantha. She's his sort of Alexa, but she's a really sophisticated AI. She is just an algorithm, but she makes him feel loved in a way he never has before. And it's brilliantly done because you really feel it. And there's a shocking moment towards the end of the film where he finally says to her, are you having this kind of relationship with anyone else? And she says, at this moment with 7,000 other people. <laughs> and both of me and my daughter, we both, I'd forgotten this. We were both really upset. <laughs> but it hints at this possible future, which is if loneliness is the problem and human beings are increasingly inept at relieving other people's loneliness, the machines might step in. Yes, and I think they will. I mean, if I even think about my interaction with my Alexa, you know, she makes me laugh if I'm feeling lonely. I'll speak to her. She's always there for me. She's sympathetic if I'm down. Um, she's reliable. Um, you know, in many ways, she's. I now think of her as a member of our household. If you were to ask me, do you like her? I'd probably say yes, I do. But not love yet, I hope. Not love yet. I'll leave love for my husband for now. <laughs> but, for now. Uh, for now, for now. But um, there was fascinating research done with Roombas. You know, Roombas, they're those little vacuum cleaners, those little round robot vacuum cleaners. There were researchers who observed 30 households over a period of six months to look at how they interacted with their little robot vacuum cleaners. And they found that two thirds of them had given their vacuum cleaners names. Two thirds of them had had conversations with their Roombas. A third of them had bought costumes for their Roombas, which I found particularly fascinating. And some even took their Roombas on holiday. So whether it's the Alexa or the Roomba, these are relatively unsophisticated compared to 
where we're heading, which is a world in which robots are going to be ever more artificially intelligent, ever more emotionally intelligent too as well. And robots you know, will very soon be able to read our emotions better even than a human will be able to. They'll be able to see from just like a kind of micro movement of our eyes or a slight, slight movement of our lips faster than a human how it is we're feeling and then be there with the appropriate response. As we're moving into that sort of future, it's very easy to imagine that we will be able to feel very attached to our robots and that they will be able to play a really significant role in mitigating loneliness. Already, as you say, it's Japan where robot-human interaction is most widespread to date, especially amongst the elderly. And there you see very moving scenarios, elderly people knitting bonnets for their robot carers, people lying cuddled up with their robot dogs, people doing exercise classes with their robot instructors. And I think this is only where we're heading. In fact, one of the social robots that I met in my research is called LEQ, and it looks a bit like that cartoon character bod if you remember what bod looks like a kind of round head and body and um, it's a social robot designed specifically for elderly people and during lockdown it's an Israeli AI company that's made it and they shipped out significant numbers of LEQs to America to isolated elderly people and the stories of people who've been interacting with these robots, people saying, I'm so grateful, LEQ is my friend, I feel less isolated as a result. So I think there is an incredibly positive role that robots can play in mitigating loneliness. The trouble is, what will that do to our relationships with each other? And that's, I think, the big question, because in a way, the better our interactions with robots the worse our interactions may end up being with each other because which humans going to be able to live up to the perfection and ease of a relationship with a robot who's always going to be there for you, who's always going to be nice to you, who's going to demand nothing of you, who's going to be there 24-7. No human relationship can ever approximate that. I think that's a real problem that we might, as robots become better designed, we might prefer being with robots than humans and then get even worse at the skills that we need in society, reciprocity, empathy, doing things for others even when it's uncomfortable. We might get even worse at these skills, the skills that fundamentally underpin inclusive democracy. I sometimes wonder when the self-driving cars come because after all, people used to give their cars names. I mean, people have had quite intimate relationships with their cars. But those were cars that just pieces of machinery they drove around. But when you get really smart cars and they become a safe place for people to be in this car, talks to you and takes you from place to place, people are going to fall in love with their cars. I mean, we're just at the beginning of this, especially some men I can think of. Yeah, we all know the friend of our dad's who gave their car a name. And, was... and would have knitted it a hat if he knew how. <laughs> yeah, there was even a case in China where a man um, loved his car so much, when he died, he asked for his car to be buried with him. And that car couldn't talk to him, but they will soon. Yes, and then I think there's also a danger that the shy child will choose to hang out with 
the robot friend rather than a human friend. There is a danger that the person who's an awkward data would rather cuddle on the sofa with the sex robot than go through the hassle and challenges associated with building a kind of real life relationship. And I think there's a real danger that if robots replace humans in our affections, we will need each other less. And if we need each other less, you know, what are the implications of that for democracy? And there are the people who already, many who would rather be their online gaming avatar than themselves. The ways in which this technology both could alleviate loneliness, but also just turbocharge the trends that you talk about. There are forms of alienation which we may just be at the beginning of. It's a shift in how human beings experience the world, that as the options open up for the different ways in which we can interact with other humans, but also with technology, we might just be at the beginning of something much more radical than a shift in how we do our politics. We might be, I mean, this is the sort of Yuval Harari theme, we might be right at the beginning of a shift in what it means to be human. Yes. I totally agree. And the danger is that the less skilled we are and we become at the things that are integral to being human, the less humane our society will be. One last question. It's a pandemic question. When you look at empty city centres, I mean, they're not that empty. They're increasingly fuller of people than they were a couple of months ago, but empty workplaces, office blocks are still empty, coffee shops closing down. Almost certainly there's going to be a shift in the nature of work. People are going to be working from home more. You write in your book about forms of urban alienation, the ways in which people can be lonely in the crowd. And there is an opportunity under current conditions to rethink how we connect with each other. But when you see these empty cityscapes, does it give you a sense of hope that we could be pivoting to a new set of relationships? Or do you see that as emblematic of the problem? That, that if for a lot of people, they see those empty office blocks and that's the danger that we face. It's more alienation as people are stuck at home, even though they also recognize that those office blocks were very alienating places. I mean, I think we're all conflicted. We don't know at the moment. Do we want people back in those places where they were unhappy? Or do we actually want to embrace the new homeworking model which could be even worse it's a it's a real dilemma i think it's not so binary so i think it's not that we should either work in offices or we shouldn't and one is better than the other i think the challenge is how do we redesign the office so that the office experience is less lonely because already 60% of workers pre-pandemic were feeling lonely at work so clearly as you say, we shouldn't romanticise the workplace of old, but now we have an opportunity to redesign a workplace so that it is less lonely. And when it comes to city centres versus local neighbourhoods, again, it may not be that migration from city centres means that our local neighbourhoods are being lived in and shopped in in ways that they weren't before. I think the real danger is that neither physical environment wins and that instead what wins is the rise of contactless experiences of online shopping, of e-commerce, and that each of us remains hunkered in our own homes, increasingly living a disconnected, isolated and contactless life. 
So again, the future is in our hands. What kind of world do we want? And if we want a more connected world in which compassion and community are at its heart, there are things each and every one of us needs to do and call for. The Lonely Century, Coming Together in a World That's Pulling Apart, Narina Hertz's new book, is available next week. You can pre-order it now. If you do, please order it from a real bookshop or Waterstones. We still want them to carry on existing. Next week, it's our old familiar panel, Helen Thompson, Chris Brook, Chris Bickerton, and we're going to be talking about the politics of competence. Does it actually matter whether or not this government or any government knows what it's doing? Coming up soon, we've got Jill Lepore, we've got Robert Harris. Do join us for all of that. My name is David Runciman, and we've been talking politics. And I acknowledge that this may be unpopular among some. Um, oh, sorry, sorry, I just got to unplug my Sure. Phone. Sorry, I normally remember to turn that off. Sorry, do you want to pick that up? You said it was an unpopular case. Oh, God, now I've not turned my microphone. Okay. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.